right, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you all to the second episode of Girl Meets Church, Discussions on Religion, Justice, Culture, and Intersectionality. Um, really excited to be back, and I am super excited about our guest for this episode. Um, it's Claudia Allen and Daytrim Pelleggi. Woo-woo! <laughs> I am so hyped that you ladies are uh, on the podcast tonight and for the discussion that we are going to have. I think uh, that all our listeners would really, really benefit from this conversation. So I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves to our listeners and uh, just feel comfortable. So Claudia, why don't you introduce yourself? Cool, cool. Uh, My name is Claudia. I am a doctoral student at the University of Maryland uh, in English. And um, I am the new content manager for Message Magazine. And so, you know, I like talking about these things. So I think that's why I'm here. So I'm excited. And uh, Tiffany and Daytrian are are longtime friends. So I feel like this is just like our phone conversations being recorded. Seriously. All right, Dee, why don't you introduce yourself? All right. I'm Dee Pelleggi. Um, I'm a neurophysiologist. I work in the medical field. Um, I'm the child of advocate um, of, um, activist. So my mother calls me activist adjacent. So I guess I'll take that. <laughs> um, uh, it's, I read a lot. I read a ton about um, our race, our culture, um, our history. And so it's what I spend most of my free time doing. Um, no expert, but I guess I have an opinion that's worth listening to if anybody else has one. That's right. Thanks. That's why we're here. First of all, I just want to say that I have totally adopted your mom's activist adjacent term. I say it everywhere. So shout out to moms for (laughs) letting us know that we ain't really sacrificed nothing yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So tonight we are talking about interracial conflict. And I know that this conversation is long overdue um, and not happening in a lot of spaces, whether we're talking about in our churches or just in society in general. Um, And so listeners, you guys are all in for a treat by having these two dope ladies on the podcast tonight. So why don't we start here? Let's kind of start from the beginning. When we talk about interracial conflict, what exactly are we talking about from your perspective? Well, I think it's the the tension that's been created by uh, white superiority in general. Um, I don't think that we realize how far back racism um, extends. Uh, We see little bits and pieces of it throughout history, and we kind of... uh, use slavery as like the summation of, of racist ideas and, and theory, but this thing is old, old. So like, I mean, I know this is what we do. We talk about this all the time, but for the listeners, you know, it's really important to know that, um, these ideas of, um, race are way older than, um, most of the trees we see and, and the things mm-hmm. that we see on this earth right now, mm-hmm. um, it's old, old. Yeah. Um, and so we can't have the conversation without, um, starting with, um, the idea of white superiority and how much their definitions of us have affected us mm-hmm. and, and began the process of, of internal conflict. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the beginning. Claudia, you can expand, you know, 
<laughs> nah, yeah, no, no, most def. Because I mean, at the end of the day, right? Like, this is something that was, you know, created and con- intentionally constructed for the purpose of economic advancement, mm-hmm. right? Like, pr- long prior to um, coming to the States, Europeans even coming to America. And so in Europe, when they were creating and, and studying the skulls of uh, different people groups, you know, that's when they began to start categorizing and determining um, that ultimately white Europeans uh, were a superior uh, group or human species. And from there, it just kind of grew. And so what we see in, you know, American society and the American constitution is really just a kind of fine-tuned explanation for what these kinds of pseudoscientists got together to, to write up in, you know, like the 14, 1500s. You know, it's, it's interesting because you both are sort of talking about how far back this goes and you know as a Caribbean immigrant you know like someone who's from Trinidad this is more recent recent learning for me and you know just cut and many people that I know and not it not really going that far back in terms of teaching or awareness um, since coming here to this country about 15 or so years ago. And even I would say half of the time that I've been here, you know, there's not really been teaching about race or understanding myself as, you know, a black individual in society. And, you know, much later on learning about this longstanding history and the realities presently. Um, and I know we all come from different spaces. Claudia be from the North, D from be from the South. Can you all speak a little bit about your own realities and how you came into awareness of this entire construct of race and these ideas of white supremacy? Well, even to, to, you know, your point about the fact that we don't even talk about it. Like, I mean, I think that part of that is rooted in the fact that if you teach people about race, then you inherently are teaching them about its fakeness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like you can't teach it and and the fact that it was like intentionally created for political and economic purposes that not come up (laughs) and so it's like as a means of keeping people in their place you know american society has to keep people ignorant Mm -hmm. and so that's why you don't have conversations about race or we don't have conversations about race as, as a country. And every time we do quote unquote, or we go about trying to, you know, people get really, really defensive Mm -hmm. Um, because the moment that you have conversations about race, you are inherently having conversations about power and placement and, and um, social um, movement, like who gets to do what, when, where, and why. And once you start, attacking race in that moment, you're literally saying that you want to move how some people move so that some other people can move differently. And that is just like inherently just disrupting life, you know, American life as it is currently set up. And so that is always going to kind of present, you know, some some tension and some frustration and and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think my... And going back to your question, Tiff, about, you know, I, I, I kind of our personal experience um, 
I, I guess I started to uh, see a big difference um, being in Harlem, uh, coming from Alabama, you know, being in school here in Huntsville and going straight to Harlem. It was just um, a, an, a personal dichotomy was created. You know, I was trying to uh figure out how to be the right kind of black, you know, and it seemed mm-hmm. like I had, you know, sides to pick from and, and it was, it was exhausting. I'd always mm-hmm. been familiar with colorism, you know, being part of the Jack and Jill organization down mm-hmm. South and hearing about the terrible history of paper bag tests and things like that, um, that were, you know, rooted in awful colorism. I went up North and, you know, it began with little comments about me being naive because I'm black American or inherently lazy because I'm black mm-hmm. American or, um, you know, not worthy of dating somebody's son or, you know, not having one of my brothers date anyone's daughter because we were black American. When those conversation conversations started to, you know, become more frequent, I realized it wasn't just a run in with some ignorant people here and there, that this was a culture. This was a way of thinking. And so it expanded my idea of what intra-racial conflict or racism, bigotry, whatever you want to call it, is and that this thing is sick. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the sickest things to me. It's, it's one of the ugliest results of racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you were speaking, it just, this thing doesn't even begin when you come to America, right? Like I recall speaking to so many people who even before they migrate here, they're already being taught about who to connect with, who not to connect with. Stay away from black Americans, Mm. like stick to your people, stick to your Caribbean folk. Uh, And, you know, there is the negativity starts even before you come here and actually get a chance to know people um, and to really know each other. And, you know, it's just so sad that our community, the black community has experienced this sort of fragmentation in these ways and still do to this day, even, you know, as we talk about black love, black excellence, black success, even within that, there's still those pockets of this. I'm sticking to my people and you stick to yours, but this sort of false Mm -hmm. sense of community. Yeah. Yeah, You know, Claudia and I, you know, we're arguing uh, via text as we often do. You know, it's just what we do, um, <laughs> listeners. This is just how, you know, we get down. We all argue and we fight over stupid stuff. And, and then we end up agreeing at some point and coming, you know, to a humble understanding with each other. But one of the things that we were talking about was the difference between, you know, in titles. Should we call it interracial racism? Should we call it interracial bigotry? Should we call it interracial conflict, prejudice or whatever? Um, and none of those terms are really mutually exclusive. You know, they kind of all work together in some way mm-hmm. or another. Mm-hmm. However, um, when we're talking about the intra-racial issues, there are just so many homonyms, you know, um, I'm using that word because, you know, it's important that we know in this conversation that there are multiple meanings for the words that we use. And, um, you know, of course, not intra-racial, but the conflict, the bigotry, the racism, this stuff has, and this is where uh, Claudia and I disagree, but some level of power behind it, um, even if it's the power of separatism. You know what I'm saying? Did I make up a word? No. Mm-hmm. You're good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, English major. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's been a long day. Anyway. 
<laughs> you know, it's important that we um, we we keep that in mind. You know, these arguments are are kind of um, they can they can kind of devolve into semantics. You know, and I really don't want that for this conversation. So I just want to get that out of the way. I'm sorry, just be uh, just getting all off topic just to put my point in there. <laughs> no, no, you're good, man. I mean, you know, even as you know, you guys have been talking, you know, like Tiff, like I didn't know that, you know, Caribbean immigrants kind of have this almost kind of like a pre-education before kind of like, you know, hitting, hitting American soil almost. Um, because I was pretty much born and raised in the Midwest portion Mm -hmm. of this country. And, um, I always laugh and joke that I feel like I had like a Southern, Black American experience in the mm-hmm. North because, you know, my family, they are like direct um, descendants of the Great Migration. Like, um, and so originally from Georgia, migrated to Detroit and, you know, ended up in Chicago. Um, and so because of that, I grew up always knowing that I was Black, but I did not grow up with really like any context or contact or anything like that with non-Black American Blacks. Mm. And so it wasn't until I, you know, got into, started going to Adventist school um, and, you know, started meeting Africans and Caribbeans and, you know, people like that. But even in growing up as a child, um, it was still more so in us, them, in terms of it was always a black, white thing. So like I had a music teacher that, you know, every time we had the multicultural fair, the, you know, kids choir is supposed to sing and everyone's supposed to dress in their (laughs) authentic garb. And so my Caribbean classmates are wearing stuff from Jamaica and -and so-and-so from Honduras is wearing their thing and -and so-and-so from Africa is wearing their thing and everybody's got their thing. And so everybody's like, okay, well, Claudia, what are you going to wear? And I'm like, a church dress. (laughs) Girl, you should have worn a fitted and some Air Force ones. <laughs> you know, listen, and so like we got a culture too. We have a culture too, <laughs> and there is like you know my music. My music teacher would you know constantly try to you know get me in trouble with my mother, not realizing the fight she was getting herself into by trying to be like, "Hey, Claudia needs to wear her cultural garb. Like, where in Africa are y'all's ancestors from?" It's like. Like, please do not ask me a disrespectful question like this. We don't know. You know we traumatized. Listen, like me and my mom was about to come up in there with with the slave outfit and some chains on. Like the way these little little white Adventist schools was trying to have us out here. Okay. Not today. I just say that to say that I didn't really experience like intra-racial issues until Mm -hmm. I got to college really and that's so, real that's it, real for a lot of people though Clyde you know what yeah. I mean you got to think about the most of the U.S. you know have you ever seen that map that was in the New York Times back in the 70s I want to say um it was New York Times or or uh what's that big magazine um I can't remember y'all know the one I'm talking about Essence Jet Ebony no it ain't black it's a it's a, a white <laughs> magazine you know what I mean you had to go straight to the black. See what I mean? It's interracially racist. But, um, 
Nah, it was Time. Oh, <laughs> Time Magazine. That's what it was. But it, it's a map of the country, and it basically says like New York, Texas, California, and then it's like rest mm-hmm. of America. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But, but low key, that's the way a lot of people think. It's those ports of entry that kind of have the biggest impact on on our culture in America, and like the these settlements of slaves, the large settlements of slaves. So you got the. Uh, whether it was from the Great Migration or from slavery. So the people that really set the culture and the tone of our country are from the East Coast all the way down into Florida. You know, Atlanta has become its own hub, but that's because people kind of re-migrated back down south. Uh, Mm -hmm. Texas, New Orleans, California, um, and of course, New York. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But you you, you think about these places, you know, these coastal places, and that's where, you know, we kind of... kind of settled and established our own uh our own little culture but most of middle america doesn't really encounter they don't really encounter different um types of black folk you know you get the adventurous mm-hmm. africans that'll go to the university of camp kansas or you know what i'm saying yeah. you know, people are just like what's the difference i'm gonna go to whatever school i want to go to you know what right <laughs> you know what i mean but most people are like what well, iowa uh-uh <laughs> you know what i mean and right so, yeah, we don't get to really meet our our other brothers and sisters from other countries and places right. just because of that, you know. Mm-hmm. You never heard of Jamaican like I can't wait to move to Michigan. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Who says that? <laughs> no yeah. offense to anybody from Michigan. Sorry, Claude. You know I like they no, all, it's all it's good, bitch. Claudia, you mentioned something though because I feel <laughs> like a lot of times or even D, as both of you guys are African-Americans, there's this conversation around African-Americans don't feel like they have a culture or are connected to this huge, just kind of like culture where there's food and music and clothing. And that's a conversation that happens often, but you were just saying that you very well much do have a culture. So why do you... So where isn't this idea that Caribbeans and Africans have this really meaningful culture and it differentiates us from Americans come from? Nah. Nah, I mean, I'm sorry, Claire, I'm gonna jump in on this real quick before <laughs> I forget I'm elderly. Go um, on. But like we're a country of immigrants, right? So if we Claudia and I were to move to, to Trinidad we would be the ones with this exotic cultural experience, right? Mm-hmm. If there were, if people were in mass to move from America to, to, to Trinidad or Jamaica or some Caribbean country in mass, we would be the ones with the culture and we would be the ones celebrating our specific holidays. And, and it would seem exotic and different. I think what makes it so alluring is that not only, first of all, our culture is global. Mm-hmm. Black culture is a global culture. So. Once we once we put our stank on something, I mean, Black American culture is a global culture. Hey, hey! Everybody rocks our clothes. Everybody listens to our music. Everybody rocks right. our swag. You know what I'm saying? And, and and it may be in a in a in smaller doses in other in in some areas rather than others. But it's that the beauty of being Black is that they get to adopt our very public culture and to have their own individual cultures. Yeah. Yes. And when they bring them to the U.S., of course, they want to celebrate what they experience here as black Americans and what they know from their homeland. And I think it just makes it beautiful. But that that doesn't make our culture irrelevant or non-existent. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's just so normal 
it's kind of like, you know, the way people speak on a day to day. You roll through New York. They're not speaking in Patois for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They've adopted the American lingo and then they can switch it on or off. You know what I mean? Which I think is dope. But Mm -hmm. it is what it is. You know what I mean? And just jumping on to Dacian's point, like when you really study American culture, because American culture is so globalized, what ends up happening and this is, you know, the effects of racism in America, black culture in America becomes American Mm -hmm. culture globally. Yep. So that our music, our style, everything that we do, if you go to Korea, they're saying that they are, you know, performing American culture. If you go anywhere else, they're saying that they are performing American culture, not African-American culture. And so because of that, I think that people come to the States just with this belief that, oh, black Mm. Americans don't have a culture, Um, you know. And that was really my first encounter when I was in college. You know, I ended up meeting um, some Haitians and we became really good friends. And, you know, they're telling me, yeah, Claudia, you don't have a culture. You know, we have a language and we have food and, you know, you don't have any of that. (laughs) And so, (laughs) listen, (laughs) and so it's like just this idea that, you know, you go to Christian churches and sing gospel music and Mm -hmm. think that that's not black American culture. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Or to think that you can come from like urban communities in this country and wear like Daytree was talking about the fitteds and the Jordans and the baggy clothes. And, you know, you can have the whole look and you can read our literature and you can, you can completely engage in what is black American culture. But then all of a sudden it gets erased You know what I mean? Like, that's what I think is like so frustrating sometimes because it's like Ebonics is not our cultural language. Mm. Ebonics is like a Mm. speech impediment. It's Mm -hmm. like, I don't write like that. Like, I know how to spell. Like, I am choosing to speak like this. But I also know how to get out of pocket and say what I want (laughs) to say when I'm feeling sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can speak Sally's language and I can speak Bonquisha's language. I'm, you know, we bilingual like that. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, and Tiff over here is trilingual. I've seen Tiff speak straight, straight New York gully, then move it with some with some Trinidadian dialect, and then come back yeah. to standard English. All in a all yeah. in a sentence. but that's the isn't that the beauty of of global blackness right like like why can't we be this people that's like man i love haitian creole and i love jamaican patois and i love the sing-songness of the trinidadian (laughs) and the people from tobago like you know Mm -hmm. like blackness Mm -hmm. has like a very different sound depending on on where it is and i think that that's what's so amazing about us it's like if you put black people in a particular region of the world whether it's in the states or in the caribbean or in south america or in africa or even in europe you're going to get a kind of flavor um that is different and unique and it's so dope and i just i'm I'm just like let's celebrate all of the differences beyonce said it best on homecoming Uh you just got so much swag it's just ridiculous and it doesn't matter where we're from you know we can swag out but you know i just wanted to say um that the reason that i believe could you know 
the thing that I believe contributes most to, you know, kind of this pre-programming that um, Caribbean people undergo as per Tiffany and not just Tiffany, but uh, many, many Caribbean people that I've spoken with have said that it's just always been that way, that they've always thought that way, you know, Mm -hmm. since before they came to this country. So, you know, but it has a lot to Mm -hmm. do with what they see in the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta, there are no, um, big, big, promotions of people like Sean King or Ibram Kendi or even Van Jones, who's, you know what I mean? Damn near white, you know, when I, you know, culturally, um, but Mm -hmm. you know, they don't get exposure to these people. And so Angela rise of the world that they don't get exposed to the people that we get exposed to here in the United States. And so what they're Mm -hmm. left with is kind of the leftover BET movies, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the music, which if you don't understand the culture can just sound off-putting and gross. You know what I mean? If you didn't understand where public enemy came from and the origins Mm -hmm. of public enemy, you would listen to that trash and think Mm -hmm. black Americans Mm -hmm. are violent animals. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But it's the context of that album that changed our entire, you know, rap culture. Mm -hmm. It was the context of that album that gave us the freedom to express ourselves in words that weren't kind of politically correct or whatnot. You know, mm-hmm. but it's it's an exposure to context that makes the biggest difference. And what I love about people like Tiffany is the fact that um, she can't she was willing to lay down her prejudices and kind of just try to understand the context of being a black American and that we're probably the most mm-hmm. misunderstood group of people in, yeah, in the world. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have conversations mm-hmm. with a lot of my own, you know, Caribbean brothers and sisters um, who are wrestling with sort of where do you begin um, with really understanding why Black Americans are, you know, have these experiences and and the music and the culture and all these things are placed in this context from a really painful history that for the very first time, many people are just beginning to read and beginning to learn um, and not really knowing how to position yourself to learn. So I wanted to ask a question of like, how do you guys think, what does the conflict look like? Like if we were to pinpoint negative ways in which this interracial conflict shows up in our communities what are some ways that will what, what are some ways it looks mm, mm, mm. <laughs> oh girl Man. i think one of the biggest um and most hurtful things um that i've ever experienced interracially was um it actually came right after the uh the the genesis of ASJ mm-hmm. um, when Philando Castile was murdered. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of people, that was extremely traumatic. I'm one of those people. When I say I was traumatized by that video, I was traumatized by that video. You know, I grew up in not the greatest area, so it's not like I haven't seen people shot or seen blood or or experienced death, unfortunately, in that way. But seeing that happen the way that it did looking, I can still see that little girl's face clear as day. If she walked next to me, I would know who she was. I I know Mm -hmm. his girlfriend's face. It's like seared in my brain. And I can remember going to a church that my uh, husband was pastoring at the time and just sharing my experience of how hurt I was and watching the apathy on my 100% Mm -hmm. Caribbean church. I mean, I was the only um, Mm -hmm. black American at my church at that time. Mm-hmm. And seeing the apathy and and hearing the 
the disconnect between cultures that existed, you know, in mm. their minds was just mind boggling. It was hurtful. But at the same time, I felt a sense of pity and, mm-hmm. and a sense of urgency to kind of correct that thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, thank God for my husband, um, who at the time was not playing those games and he's a Hispanic dude, you know what I mean? But he got up and he was like, you know, you think when a gun is pointed at your black behind, Uh they're going to ask you, show your accent, run me your accent. Mm. Nobody cares if you, you, you speak Patois or Ebonics, you're going to get shot just the same because your behind is black. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so that, that reality uh, started to to hit soon after. And it it started to change the game in, in that little church. But, um, that's one of the ways that it shows up. This kind of separatist idea that I don't have, I am not black American and therefore I cannot identify, don't want to identify um, or be a part of their culture or their issues. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, the other thing is just how we kind of talked about this mm-hmm. earlier, just in, in how we tear each other down in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, um, I agree with Daytrian. Like it, it's, it's really hard to be black American and, and kind of have this fundamental knowledge that, you know, regardless of your place of origin, um, you know, systemic racism and white terror is going to affect you and right. everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's like you then as a black American, like you're, when you're fighting, like you're fighting for black people, period. Mm-hmm. And so while you're doing that and then you come in contact with people who make comments to you like, oh, well, Claudia, like you're the exception to the rule. Like, I don't know other black people that are educated or, you know, you're the only black Americans. Your family's house is the only black American house I've been to that, you know, has been like it's like an actual house with land <laughs> or, you know, um, you know, black Americans aren't educated. Claudia, you're the only black American I know that's educated. So it's like to hear like different things like that and, and to hear the put downs and to have to kind of like carry that load or even like I've had people come up to me and say, Oh, nah, Claudia, you can't be black American because of your hair or because you're light skin or uh, because of how you speak. You sound like you're from um, somewhere else. Like, you know, I love Caribbeans. Listen, I feel like I am like, Caribbean by association. Like every close friend right. I have is Caribbean. Caribbean. You Caribbean okay? Listen, everybody I care about is Caribbean. Okay. Right. And like, you know, I've had Caribbeans tell me, man, oh Claudia, no, don't worry. You're not right. black American. Like I I swear you're from an island. Like, or you know, Claudia, don't worry. You know, you're not just like regular black, like you're like you're something. And it's like like, why is it problematic to just be regular black? You know, it hurts me to hear that, too. Like, it, it's, it sounds almost like, you know, what I hear all the time from from white people, especially in, in Alabama, here mm-hmm. where I am now. You know, you're pretty. You're so beautiful for a black girl. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, oh, you age so well. <laughs> you know, I thought, you know low key, I saw that on a meme one time. I've been using that joint ever since. Every time they drop that on me, I say something real petty in return. Be like, uh-huh. oh, your child is so pretty for a white baby. <laughs> Walk away. But it's like you have to because it's like I don't feel like people understand like how hurtful some of the things they say are. You know, like when you uh-huh. say stuff like that, you're in essence trying to like erase right 
my actual biological family. Right. You know what I mean? Like I have living aunts and upgrade you and grandmother. And upgrade you. Yeah, and upgrade me to some kind of a better blackness right. that I unfortunately just did not have the privilege of growing up in. And yeah. it's like, you know, that that doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? We're we're not innocent either. I gotta be honest. You know, I, I don't want to get off into this conversation and act as if, you know, African Americans or mm-hmm. FMs, we'll just call them FMs because it's too long to say that. Mm-hmm. The FMs are 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 innocent because we're not. You know what I mean? I, I can remember being a kid and trust me, I've had to make phone calls over over, you know, I was not not a bully. Mm-hmm. I wasn't not a bully. I'm just gonna put it like that. But like, I'm just, you know, what I mean, I had to make some phone calls and some Facebook messages real right. quick because, you know, I remember calling people African booty scratchers, talking about Haitian body odor and calling folks straight off the boat. And you know what I'm saying? Just really yeah. ugly, hateful things that were that were really said out of ignorance and, and being a child and calling out differences is kind of the thing to do to cover yeah. your own insecurities. And, you know, we've mm-hmm. all been guilty of it. Um, and you know, to, to, I know Africans who mm-hmm. have been extremely damaged right. by mm-hmm. black Americans. Claude, mm-hmm. you remember a dude named Daniel from, um, from Andrews? He was studying in seminary, real, real tall, dark skin. Yeah. Um, from the, from Suzanne, from Sudan. He's from Kenya. Oh, never mind. Yeah, he was Kenyan. Um, It's probably the same dude, but, you know, he was just a real goofy, kind of, you know, lighthearted, happy dude. Um, Oh, yeah, he he wore glasses and he sang. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So he was, he's the Kenyan dude. You know, he sat in my living room one time to, and almost came to tears. Now, this boy had to be, I'd say 20, maybe between 26 and 29 when I met him. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and he was almost in tears talking about stuff that happened to him in high school. And not once mm-hmm. did he mention anything about racism. Right. It was all about how the black American kids treated him, you know, being mm-hmm. a different African kid growing up. in, I believe he grew up in Michigan, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all of the jokes that were made about him. And he told them, you know, my, my parents mm-hmm. didn't use the same products as my black friends when we came to, you know, when they came to this country. So they didn't teach us to use the same products. And so, yeah, maybe I was a little musty or maybe whatever, you know, but I, I just felt so attacked. And he I mean, he really was he was saying some of the things they said. And, you know, it was like a dagger in yeah, the heart. I had there's said been a lot things. of pain on, yeah. on all sides, you know, like yeah. everyone has their serve what we've done to each other. And we've definitely hurt each other. Um, and I don't know if it's some form mm-hmm. of like self self-taught self-hatred or or whatever it is but the pain is there and it's very much real and I think it gets in the way of us being able to reconcile with each other so you guys mm -hmm. I think it's like I think it's like Daytrian was saying in the sense that it's not I don't even know I'll say it like this I think it's like she was saying earlier Mm -hmm. in terms of you know you use it as a mask for your own insecurities and your own pain. And I think that, you know, like you were saying before, you know, we just have a tendency to want to stick to our people groups. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, um, one thing I think that's great about America is it's a melting pot, but I think one of the difficult things about it is mm-hmm. there's this sense of kind of like removal from your origins in order to kind of be 
American, whether you're Black American, Caribbean mm-hmm. American, African, or, you know, from the continent, African American. And, you know, if, when that happens, whether it was my ancestors having their heritage mm-hmm. and their origin just completely stripped and stolen from them, or you are, you know, Caribbean American coming to the States trying to fit in, you know, like there's this sense of like, I have to mm-hmm. leave behind or let go of, you know, who I am. And in an effort to kind of hold on to who you are and, and hold on to your heritage and your nationality and your culture and all that's good about your upbringing, I think that sometimes we feel like in order to celebrate who we are and our experiences and stuff, we have mm-hmm. to denigrate and disrespect those that are different from us. And I think that that's what hurts because it's like I'm trying to make myself feel good Mm -hmm. and I feel like the only way that I can make myself feel good is by make you feel bad and at the end of the day that I think is Mm -hmm. the trick taken straight out of white supremacy's book um because that's that's literally how they create everything it's like whiteness has to be defined and understood in in comparison to the other and it is going to be elevated Um, based on comparison to the yeah. other. And so unfortunately, I feel like that's what we do even within Blackness. Oh, yeah. It's all based on context, Claude. You know, you, you're absolutely right. You know what I mean? We have to learn to appreciate each other's contexts because that's what, you know, defines our kind of Blackness. Our context defines our Blackness. And so, you know, um, I'm not going to have a lot in common mm-hmm. with a Black, you know, some Black people from certain parts of America. To be honest, you know what I mean? I can't identify with, with dude, I'm in Alabama. There's people from Memphis I can't identify with. And Memphis is like, what, three hours away from where I am. You know what I mean? But but their culture is so much different and it's so rich. And, you know, it it takes learning and it takes adapting to understand mm-hmm. why they talk, why they say her instead of here. You know, you know, it's little little nuances like that. Why they eat spaghetti and fried fish? Somebody on here knows what I'm talking about. So... You know, it, it sounds weird to us, but that's their context. And there's always a story, a beautiful story um, behind it that, you know, I just I love hearing. I love talking about. Um, and I always tell people, Tiff, I think we had this conversation when we first met, um, even when people move to this country for certain they for for a better life, you know, um, a chance at, at earning more, taking care of their families back home, whatever it may be. They take on jobs that mm-hmm. in our context, we would never be able to yeah. take without feeling a certain way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you when your grandmother or your mother um, weren't wasn't able to take care of her own children because she had to care for white children as a maid or a nanny. Um, mm-hmm. When you come to you know, when you come to this country, you see that with a completely different context. It's just a job. It has no history. It has no meaning to you. But yeah. when I see a black woman pushing a stroller with, you know, white kids and, and holding mm-hmm. the hand of a white child, it takes me back to a place, a dark place that I, I don't like to return to. And I may refuse a job like that because of my context. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, D, it's so interesting. I tell that story all the time because I think it was sort of one of my first awakenings that time we had that conversation it probably was when we first met and it just really transformed my entire perspective about it and I've told it a million times clearly your family just gives me a lot of talking (laughs) points from 
But it just, I mean, it blew my mind as someone who babysat for white families for like over 10 years, Mm. right? And never really thinking about it in that way and never having to Mm. think about it in that way, which is, you know, some form of, I don't want to really use the word privilege, but to some degree, like never having to really think of what it means for people who look like me to have a totally different reaction to babysitting, you know, white families or taking care of white children and things in that way. And and it just, it changed my entire outlook. And, and I think really helped me to speak to people who have the same experiences that I do to help them understand it differently too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you guys talk about the beauty in our cultures and in our differences and in our stories and understanding each other's context. What do you all see as steps forward to begin like healing and, and you know, really confronting the ways in which we've all hurt each other as African-Americans, Caribbeans, Africans, wherever we fall. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, this year is a huge year of Ghana where they're encouraging everyone to go back to Ghana mm-hmm. in this attempt hmm. to reconnect us from the beginning. Um, what what other ways do you guys think will help us get there? I can't say enough um, uh, the importance of getting out of your comfort zone and experiencing as much of our culture as you can. Once you see how beautiful and diverse it is, there's no way to, you know, keep carrying these ideas of uh, better or worse, you know, of uh, prejudice towards your own folks. You know, you get to see how dope we make whatever area we were dropped off in. You know what I mean? You drop us in Haiti, we're going to revolt and make our own country. You drop us in Jamaica, we're going to give you some of the most bomb food with the Indian spices that you've ever tasted in your life. You drop us in Trini, we're going to do the same. Then we're going to throw something like Carnival together and make y'all bust down. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't matter. We go to Cuba, we're going to give you a a whole new dance. You know, it doesn't matter where you drop us. We're going to develop our own culture, even within the States. You know what I mean? You, you, You think about um, the what what California did for rap. When you think about how different Louisiana culture is and Creole culture is from that of somebody from Michigan, you know when you mm-hmm. when you go across the South and you hear all these rich accents and you go up the coast of, on the East Coast and you hear Geechee and Gullah and and yeah. how similar it sounds to Jamaican patois, you realize we're all connected. You know what I mean? We're all connected in some way or another. And we have these little things that we do that really cannot unblack us. I don't know no other way to say it. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter where we're dropped. We will do things that connect us as black people. And if you look, you will find them and you will see that we are all from the same place. Yeah. 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 You just got dropped off first. That's what you always say, right? Right. You got dropped off in a sunnier area than me back then. That's that's it. (laughs) Yeah, man. I just feel like, you know, it's very hard to hate a people when you know somebody from there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, it's easy to say um, all Caribbean men cheat and African men beat their women and all this, you know. Caribbeans are loud, you know, all the negative things that black Americans have said about Caribbeans and Africans. It's easy to say that kind of stuff when you are not friends or connected with anybody that is from the Caribbean or from the continent. Right. And I think that 
you know, to begin with, it begins with kindness, quite simply, and, and just being willing to accept and embrace people for who they are and and just love how everyone wants to celebrate their blackness differently, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I don't know how much Dijojo rice I have eaten (laughs) over the 10 years since I graduated from high school. I don't know how much, um, you know, Trini food I've eaten in the last three years with with, with my Trini's make the best roti. We're not having this argument. It's just Trinidadian Listen, if, you, if you're eating oxtail from anybody other than a Trinidadian woman, I just feel like you're Put not living your life right. Put it back in the pot. Mm-hmm. Nobody even told you to touch it. Nobody told you to pick that up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I just feel like, or, or, oh, this is the other thing that came to mind too. It's like to suggest that I have to go with Haitians, right? Because like all my friends are Haitians. And so it's like to say that like Haitians are, are all loud. And then right. like my best friend is introverted. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I, like one of my closest Haitian friends is probably the quietest human being I have ever met in my entire mm-hmm. life. <laughs> and right. so it's like, I think that all of the stereotypes and all of the disrespectful jokes, because sometimes we don't even mean it from a negative place. We're just trying to be right. stupid and funny. All the, all the disrespectful jokes, all the stereotypes, um, all that stuff goes out the water when you actually meet real human beings and recognize wow. that what's more important is the individual and how maybe the group culture has impacted and influenced the individual, but that the individual is not the whole. Right. And right. unfortunately, like that's what blackness as a race is in this country. And we have unfortunately had to bear the burden of representing the whole whereas white people get to be individuals yeah and i feel like one of the greatest acts of resistance that black people can do is to resist the categorizing that white supremacy constantly tries to place on us like i don't have to be identified with the whole because the whole is a misrepresentation of the group (laughs) I, I i think that sums it up that's the best word that you could have used claudia and it's resist you know, that's mm-hmm. that's what's going to be the game changer. We have to resist everything that we've been taught about each other that we yeah. don't know personally and, in, you know, in an informed way. Not I knew this dude once or I saw in a movie or, you know, uh, all the other ignorant ways with which we gather information. But to actually have some actual knowledge, experience with something, mm-hmm. you have to resist what we've been taught. Um, to feel about each other that that there is a better kind of black we have to resist that completely yeah right I think of um, some churches that I've been connected to churches that I've attended or just have friends out who are really struggling with this issue of interracial conflict where uh, people feel like their church has changed due to immigration or immigrants feel like their voice is not valued or, you know, there's just a lot of shame and blame and, and a lot of what we've been talking about. Do you guys have any advice for like pastors or leaders uh, in ways in which they can help <laughs> their church move forward? Cause I think one of the like benefits, right. Was that I had this opportunity to develop these really powerful friendships with two of you that I know that a lot of people don't have. Not that they can't have it, but they may not have it just yet. Mm-hmm. And really being able to have some hard and, and just like empowering conversation and, and learning a whole lot. So like what can churches do 
or conferences do to really address this topic and not hide or run away from it and help their churches move forward? Well, they can bring us in, uh, Claudia, Tiffany, and Daytrian. We have the Dash Between, which is always willing to come to your church and host a, an intensive for your congregation on uh, interracial issues and how to resolve those kinds of conflicts. I mean, that's always out there if we're putting in commercials or whatnot. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But other than that, it's, you know, uh, it's really it's really intentionally having this conversation and not letting up when it gets uncomfortable, you know, yeah. um, digging in. You know, the one thing that I can say about, you know, black people um, is that we're all good when 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 we see a face that looks like ours doing something great we don't argue where they're from. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. only when we see negativity that we become separatists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only when we feel that we're going to be grouped with a stereotype and not be as impressive to what we don't realize as a white audience. Mm-hmm. You understand what I mean? That we, that we care about, um, exactly where we were born and, 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 and mm-hmm. what our background is and all of those things come into play. But if, if Serena Williams wins the U S open, it's a sister, mm-hmm. right? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? When LeBron mm-hmm. crushes it, it's a brother. When he buys mm-hmm. a school, it's a brother. You know what I mean? But when we have five black men that go to jail on, on, on drug charges and that's black Americans feel me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, nah, I'm a, I'm a station on that one. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like, one thing that our churches do, and I put this in quotations well, is every February, <laughs> every culture gets a weekend, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the Black Americans get a weekend, the Afro Latinos get a weekend, the Africans get a weekend, and the Caribbeans get a weekend. Yeah. So we think that we are embracing one another because one Sabbath out of the year, we're going to play some reggae, and then the next Sabbath, we go play some gospel. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's problematic. Yeah. Because for one, um, you're kind of essentializing whole cultures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, I've seen people not go to church on the weekends with the folk that they don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, if you feel if you're a conservative black American and you just feel like any kind of reggae or calypso turned gospel is problematic, you're not going to go to Caribbean Sabbath. Right. And, you know, if you don't, you know, understand any of the African songs that are being sung on African Sabbath, then you're going to pick another church to go to on African Mm -hmm. Sabbath. Right. Um, And so at that point, right, there's there's this programming set up that's supposed to allow us to embrace. And, you know, a lot of times there's potlucks and food and all this stuff. But, you know, if you don't feel like being uncomfortable or you don't feel like opening up, then you don't have to embrace anybody. Mm -hmm. You can just pick another church to go to. And I think that that, you know, I think that it's the first step, but I think that we've got to open it up to like some very real conversations um, and be willing to admit that we hold some very negative, dangerous and destructive thoughts about each other. And until we are willing to have real conversations and build real relationships with each other, we're, we're not going to get anywhere mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah. Yeah. And so our, our coming together, our uniting, our solidarity rests on our ability to, like D, D was saying, to resist 
the foolishness with any Absolutely. And, and black folks know this trash. Like if you've read any history books, I mean, read one book that mentions slavery and you're going to read about <clears throat> um, divide and conquer. You know, it's just a, it's an issue that you can't get around if you study anything about slavery exactly. that they knew from the beginning that if we were united, we would be a problem. They saw what happened in Haiti and they said never again. And so whatever means by whatever means they can divide black people, they will. They will tell a black Caribbean person, which I know plenty that have been told by white people that they're so different than black Americans. So much better than black Americans. Listen to Tiffany. I'm sure she's heard it before. Mm -hmm. But but you know what I mean? It's a lie from the pits of hell. And first of all, That ain't no compliment and we have to stop right. receiving it as such. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's that resistance. If we can resist in little ways um, in our own personal lives, you know, not yeah. laughing at jokes that demean other cultures that are black. Yeah. We got plenty to make fun of. Right. We got to mm-hmm. make fun of each other. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so much other content to make fun of. Unless we have a real understanding and there's genuine um, rejection and resistance towards interracial bigotry, then you know, we can't even begin to, to, to make those jokes. We, we're not in a place to even do that. Right. Yeah. And let's stand up for each other. Yes. You know, I remember my mom telling me a story about how she was in a meeting with, you know, predominantly white people. It was her. And then there was another woman who happened to be Jamaican. And the people in there made a racist derogatory joke about d- Jamaicans. And like everybody in here is laughing. The Jamaican person is just quiet. And my mom is like, Wait a minute now. This is not a thing. You know, and uh, I think, you know, like sometimes like we've got to be willing to fight for each other, you know, and I'm going to fight for the Jamaicans cause. I'm going to fight for the Haitians immigration cause. I'm going to fight for the black American cause. It it does not matter Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. where you are from. It's that if injustice is happening to you, then I have to have your back. Period. Point blank. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And outside of immigration, just for like my own like Caribbean family, we shouldn't only participate in social justice advocacy when, you know, it becomes an immigration issue. And now we're all fearful for our status or whatever that might mean. But being just as mm-hmm. passionate and and a part of the overall uh, call to justice is, is necessary and we have to fight for each other, like you all said. Any last points, ladies, before we wrap up? You know, the other thought that came to my mind, too, is I think that there has to be kind of an educating. We have to be willing to educate ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Caribbeans need to be willing to read and study and learn about Black American culture, particularly the Black American experience in this country to really understand Mm -hmm. us. But then I think also that, you know, we as Black Americans also have to be willing to read and study about the Caribbean experience with colonialism and racism Mm -hmm. uh, to understand their context and what it is that they're coming with. I don't know how many you know conversations I've had um, with different people. And the one that's even coming to my mind is um, Datrian's really good friend, my really good friend and former choir director, Adrian Langdon. Uh, you know, he is Caribbean and he's from Canada. And, um, you know, he... Quite thing. <laughs> I didn't say that, Adrian. <laughs> no, but like he has admitted like multiple times, like, hey, Claudia, like I didn't think about it like this. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know this. Like I've never come in contact with this. And I think, you know, like when we are willing to be humble with each other and come and have real conversation and be willing to be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to read this and I'm going to do this because I 
there's a context and a history that I'm just flat out unaware of. And so the things that you're talking about make absolutely no sense. Like that's just the reality of it. I don't know how many conversations I've had with Caribbeans where they're just like, I don't even have a reference point to begin a conversation. And so, you know, it's not to hold anything against anybody. It's just a matter of, you know, both parties being willing to read and understand, like, what does it mean to be black in Canada? What does it mean to be black in England? What does it mean to be black in Trinidad and Jamaica? You know, um, and and how is that different from being black here in America? And if we can... If we can be willing to learn about each other as as well as learn with each other, I think that'll also help. Awesome, awesome. And if you need help with that endeavor, I would um, recommend as a as a beginner book that's really not so beginner in content, and it's definitely you know about five hundred pages. Uh, Stamped from the beginning: mm-hmm. A definitive history of racist ideas in America by Ibram Kendi. I think it should be a text that every black home should have. You know that black heritage Bible that every Negro person on the face of the earth has somewhere in their house? This needs to be the book that goes right alongside of it. Um, yeah. If, if I could name one that should be For right real. next to it, I think Ibram did a fantastic job in in breaking down racism from its genesis. Um you know, back with in Le- with Leopold in the 1400s. So I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's 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 dope, um, and it will help us to really have um, an understanding of where these ideas come from. It's very intersectional. It talks about the hypersexuality of black women and mm-hmm. um, hypersexualization of black women, and all those kinds of things that we don't really give credence to. You know, why why are big lips and a small waist and big rump? you know, the attractive thing mm-hmm. nowadays. It, it has roots all the way, you know, in, in history. This has historical roots and yeah. racist roots. Yeah. You know, so we we see it as cute, but hey, you know, if we just take a moment to read um, and to study our history and where all this stuff came from and not uh, just take the, the little colloquialisms that we learned and the little uh, bigoted ideas that we, we, we hear from our family dinner tables and sitting in the car with our family to heart as being actual truth and and being meaningful. Um, If we can reject and resist, um, that's the beginning of of, uh, a change for us as Negroes. So on that note, this uh, idea of resisting and and ensuring that we're all a part of the resistance from our homes all the way to the streets Thank you all, ladies. This conversation was definitely rich and full. I want to put in a plug. If you are a leader at your church and you're wondering where to begin, please reach out to us. We are available to come to your church and continue this conversation, walk you through some of the difficult topics. This is Girl Meets Church. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much to Claudia Allen. Uh, Make sure you check out Message Magazine. Uh, They have amazing articles with our new content coordinator, our content manager, my apologies, doing an amazing, (laughs) got to put some respect on it, doing a great, great job over at Message. Um, We probably need a part two to this conversation. Uh, I think there's just so much yeah, yeah. to talk about. If you have questions, feel free to send it in and we can do a part two and discuss this further. Um, so thank you all and I'll see you all on the next episode.